Right then, the meeting has officially come to order. The Apex Podcast with me, Alex Yotzi. All right, and there we go. Uh, so this is the first episode of the Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and I got someone that I could not think of anyone else to have better on my first episode than an old friend of mine, Nick Volpe. How you going, Nick? Very well, Alex. Um, yeah, really excited for this. Um, it would be really good for us to catch up. It's been a while, so yeah, very excited. It's, it's been a hot minute. I, I was thinking the last time we saw each other, I was in Melbourne. I can't remember whose party it was. I think it was, it might have been Jackson Griffin's party or something, the 21st. Um, oh, no, you know what? It was, it was his girlfriend, I think. Yeah, um, it would have been a good three or four years ago, though. Yeah, yeah. Hot minute, hot minute. It's been a hot minute. Uh, but you're not in Melbourne or Victoria right now. I thought you're in northern Queensland, but now I'm leaning well, towards you're now. in northern territory. Yeah, I'm in Darwin. So yeah. I've moved to Darwin, so northern territory. So I call home at the moment, which is beautiful. Yeah, how long have you been there for? I've been here nearly three years now. So yeah, it's been a been a really cool three years. De- definitely a bit of a change to Melbourne. Huge like lifestyle change, but yeah, everyone that comes up to Darwin loves Darwin. So be here for a little bit longer, I think. Yeah, it's on my list to go. It's on my list to go for sure. Uh, top of the list, to be honest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> COVID obviously been a bit of a spanner. Um, now you and me, Nick, we've had a, I'd say a very similar sort of upbringing, you know, where we've both been from like the same areas of Melbourne mm. growing up. Um, and then, you know, post high school, we studied pretty much the same course at different unis, uh, but definitely the same sort of training. Um, but you managed to hop the scotch over to Northern Territory and I stayed here. <laughs> um, so yeah, tell us a bit about how you got all. Oh, I should ask, what's your job right now? Because I know you've had some pretty cool jobs in the past. Um, so, what is your job right now? And then probably how did you get there for any young kids or people that are, you know, wanting a career change? Yeah, no, it's good. Uh, right now, I'm a full-time aquarist at the Territory Wildlife Park. So, yeah, it's a wildlife park pretty close to Darwin in Berry Springs. It's only about half an hour, 45-minute drive. Um, so, yeah, I'm a full-time aquarist at the moment. But whilst I've been in the Northern Territory, I've had a, quite a few jobs. Uh, I worked at the museum and art gallery of the Northern Territory for a little bit, a um, little bit of ecology work in the NT. And, yeah, recently we're helping film um, a, um, a documentary. So, yeah, done a few bits and pieces. And you're right. So I did do the wildlife conservation biology course at Deakin University. So very similar to your course. Uh, But yeah, after I finished that or during that course, I think the most important thing was to just get out and volunteer. So I helped with a lot of um, projects. I was very lucky to have a few good friends in the ecology field. So I helped out at the Arthur O'Reilly Institute in Melbourne, helped them go out into the field a few times, the Alpine regions, the Mallee regions. So doing a lot of field work in uni I think definitely helps. It definitely helps your good relationships. And then, yeah, right when we finished exams, pretty much the what, the last exam, me and, me and my partner Lucy went for a drive up to Alice Springs and whilst we are in Alice Springs, a job casual position came up at the um, Art Gallery, a Museum and Art Gallery of Northern Territory in Darwin and we just uh, chucked my resume in and was lucky enough to get a job there so we just kept driving up 
family wasn't too pleased, but <laughs> we sort of kept um, driving up and the opportunities just sort of flowed from there. Darwin's an incredible place for opportunities. So, um, yeah, any any young buddy naturalist, Darwin is definitely a place where you can, you know, start to build your career because once I got here, um, sort of more you talk to people, more opportunities came up. So, yeah, I've had to pick and choose. So recently, you know, I've been asked to go to Groot Island or, you know, do stuff in Kakadu. So I'm always getting sort of offers to do cool work, but I'm sort of a bit more settled now at the wildlife park. But otherwise... Yeah, Darwin is a great place for naturalists to yeah start their career for sure. So, but yeah, different opportunities to Melbourne. That is, Melbourne's a bit more competitive, as you would know. But yeah, different sort of opportunities. So, so yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, as an aquarist, what is your day to day life? What animals are you looking out for, or looking after? I should say, um, in that wildlife park. Yeah. So. Pretty cool. So at our wildlife park, uh, some of the main animals we have, we do have a saltwater crocodile. It's not a wildlife park in Darwin. We've had a crocodile. So we've got one big (laughs) four-metre salty. Uh, But the other cool animals, we've got a lot of big barramundis, but my favourite are our um, freshwater whiprays. So they're a type of stingray that can live exclusively in freshwater, so not too many people know about them. They grow huge as well, very similar to the smooth rays. Um, So, Mm. yeah, so they're some of the more cooler animals that we keep and get to interact with every day so yeah, it's, it's a pretty good job but you know cool little projects going on a few coral reefs around Darwin we try and replicate in some of our aquariums so yeah it's a very very good um, place and get to do presentations with the rays every day so it's good to you know sort of talk to people and yeah you know just teach people about these animals and the northern territory yeah yeah I, I work with the uh, smooth rays um, down in sea life Melbourne and they are extraordinary um the tanks that we have for them though it's you know 2.2 million liters worth yeah, of water amazing huge oceanarium tank um but i don't think i've ever seen a tank that big that's freshwater um so are they in a big tank over there your freshwater whip rate yeah or? we have them in two different exhibits one's actually an outdoor enclosure but otherwise they're very similar to melbourne cram we do have like a walkthrough tunnel Exhibit, mm. nowhere near as big, but, yeah, so we've got two freshwater whip rays in there and lots of big barramundi, Saratoga. So the NT's freshwater ecosystems are, are, are crazy. So, like, the amount of diversity in them is amazing. So, uh, yeah, we've got a lot of uh, the animals that you can find in all the billabongs and rivers up here in that exhibit. So a lot of big fish. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask about the crocodile. Uh, I just need to sneak in. The one at Melbourne is a little bit bigger. He's five meters. Uh, I've uh, seen that one. That one's huge. That is a yeah. Croc. P- Pingy is a handsome boy. Um, but look, four meter croc over there. You know that's that's not a <laughs> that's not bad. No, um, pretty good. Uh, have you have you worked with him or you're working up to it or? Yeah, we have a pretty much a hands off policy for the crocodile. So at no time we're close to the crocodile at all. Um, even when we're moving him off exhibits, he's got his own little pen that we open up gates and fence it all off and he actually walks out knowing he's going to get a feed. So a lot of the other wildlife parks in Darwin are a bit more, you know, they <laughs> they don't mind, you know, getting too close to the crocodiles. But, yeah, our wildlife park doesn't work like that, which is a good thing because obviously saltwater crocodiles are an animal that are very, very risky to work with and unfortunately an animal you can't really trust because, yeah, even our one would definitely eat us, giving us the chance and he always sort of, if you get too close to the fence, he'll let you know that he wants to. So, yeah, they are, they are a very dangerous animal and a huge reality here in the in the top end. So if anyone wants to visit 
the top end and Darwin, all of our rivers and our oceans are pretty much a no-go zone. So <laughs> you'll have you'll have plunge pools open during the dry season. That ranges will take a while to make sure there's no crocodiles left in there after the wet season. So yeah, crocodiles are very, very real risk up here. So yeah. Yeah. Not an very real threat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you been to any um other countries besides Australia and interacted with any wildlife there? And I'm not talking like you know, another first world country, maybe a developing country. Yeah. Because what, what I've noticed is that, you know, if you're working in a, a captive setting, the rules are night and day between over there and then in Australia because here we got so many, you know, OHS standards mm. that we must uphold, don't, you know, touch the crocodile, that sort of thing. But then other places around the world, like in South Africa, they're like, yeah, you know, go walk in with the lions and uh, <laughs> they... <laughs> if they look at you funny just you know give them a smack um so yeah have you noticed anything like that or is that just me yeah no you're definitely right uh, i haven't actually um worked in any captive scenarios overseas but i visited peru and recently malaysia a couple of years ago just doing my wildlife photography which is what um, my main thing is but yeah yeah definitely like and you, you you always have to come across it when you visit those countries like they're always um you know, opportunities for photos with monkeys and that, and definitely the OHS is extremely different. You know what they allow mm. tourists to do over there definitely wouldn't happen in Australia. But but no, I guess that's just that's just part of it. But yeah, um, visiting rainforests overseas is definitely my my favourite thing. It's just out of this world, out of this world. So completely magical. Mm. So with wildlife in Peru, uh, the only, <laughs> I know it's bad, it's a bit of a stereotype, but the only animal that I can think of when you said Peru mm. is a, a llama. A llama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, would... I mean, they've got to have more stuff than that, but <laughs> I don't know why. I'm like, what's what's big and bad in Peru? Yeah. Um, yeah, a llama, that's all I can get. What, what else did you see? <laughs> yeah, we were in the rainforest, so in the Amazon rainforest, so not much llamas there, but uh, no, all, all your big Amazonian animals. So we saw a lot of jaguar mm. prints, so we never got to see a jaguar. Um, one night we got a bit too close for my liking to a, a puma, um, but mm. we did get to see a puma. But otherwise just, you know, a whole heap of really cool um, mammals. So we got to see squirrel monkeys. Uh, we got close to giant armadillos a couple of times. So a lot of amazing diversity obviously in the reptile and amphibian front um a lot of amazing birds too so now the rainforest of peru this summer i'd love to get back especially the cloud forest we got to go to the cloud forest for a day or two this was with the university trip uh and mm. yeah the cloud forests are by far my favorite habitat in the world and that not just peru so i've been to mount Kinabalu in borneo and amazing and in australia so mount lewis as well so incredible habitats so I, I have no idea. I'm going to be honest here. I have no idea what a cloud forest is. Yeah. Uh, is that like a rainforest just filled with clouds? Pretty or? much just a rainforest. It's like really high altitude. You're basically in the clouds. So it's a bit cooler than, uh, you know, your lowland rainforest. So I know they mm. have a lot of endemic animals. So a lot of the cloud forests, even here in Australia, um, on our, some of our mountain peaks in North Queensland, most of them have endemic frogs on them. Uh, but, yeah, over in Peru, they had a lot of, like, really amazing uh, hummingbirds in the cloud forest and a lot of, yeah, endemic frogs as well. So, yeah, if you, you know, if you're ever around any tropical areas and, you know, sort of stuck in the lowlands, definitely try and get a bit higher up 
because yeah, the cloud forests are just there's everything is basically covered in lichen or moss. Like it just feels like something you know mm. something special. So yeah, incredible habitats. So oh, by the way, endemic means uh, native. Yes, for anyone that only found that in that one area. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so I'm guessing it's like really hot all the time in these cloud forests, but also, yeah, quite moist. It's actually, because that's yeah, why. actually the opposite. Yeah. So it's actually pretty cool. It always stays cool in the cloud forest. So lower right. down in the lowland rainforest, always hot, always sticky. Yeah. But the higher altitude you go up. So when I went to Mount Kinabalu yeah, almost three years ago now, that was the last time I've felt cold. So living in Darwin, it's constantly hot. Like even now, you guys are in winter, but it's still 34 degrees here every day. But <laughs> when we were on Mount Kinabalu, yeah, two and a half, three years ago, it was like constantly like 15, 16 degrees. So last time I've had to wear a jumper. So it's always, yeah, that constant cool temperature. Dude, like you say, oh, it's 15 degrees. <laughs> the past week in Melbourne has been so cold. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking you wake up and it's three degrees yeah. outside. And, Darwin um, for its coldest temperature this year, this morning. I think we got 17.8 degrees at 3 a.m. for a couple of minutes. But, yep, it was back up to 28 degrees as soon as it hit. The sun came out at 8 a.m. again. So <laughs> it gets unbearable just, sometimes. <laughs> oh, stop it. Did you see any caiman when you were out in Peru? Yes, we did. We did. So and not any big ones. Um, in some of the smaller creeks, the tributaries that I was walking through at night looking for frogs and toads, I uh, did have a couple of run-in with some smaller caimans, so got to get really mm. close. Uh, I think they were the black caimans. So, yeah, didn't really get to see any over, I think, a metre and a half is the biggest one I got to see. But, yeah, definitely really, really cool. That's pretty big for a, for a caiman. They're yeah. always like dwarf versions of crocs, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it was pretty cool to be able to see one, though, for sure. And uh, do you see any green anacondas? or No, no, uh, no, not too much on the snake front, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, if I ever go again, I'll definitely be sort of be more targeting some of the vipers over there. So, yeah, not too much on the hurt front, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, uh, something that really impresses me and I'm sure a lot of other people out there is that you have actually discovered a few species of insects. Yes. Did you name them after yourself? Uh, no, you can't quite do that. Um, <laughs> but my best friend, Joseph Schubert, who is um, a taxonomist, a spider taxonomist, did name uh, the peacock spider I found in South Australia after me. So that was, that was a great honour. Uh, but yeah, there you go. yeah. So, but like you said, yeah, it, it, it's it's very hard with taxonomy with invertebrates, not in Australia but across the world, because they're often you know they're left out um, when the funding sort of mm. comes and it always goes towards your bigger animals. So, and invertebrates are really left out, and especially here in the NT, yeah, like you said, there's been there's probably been a dozen um, invertebrates I've found now that don't have any sort of name to them or no one really working on them. So. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the insects and invertebrates I photograph are actually currently undescribed and being named by taxonomists, but, yeah, a lot of them are just completely unknown, which is very exciting. So there is still new species out there to find when you get to these remote bits of Australia, but, yeah, not even remote. You know, a lot of those peacock spiders, uh, especially in Western Australia, they were just popping up pretty close to, you know, a lot of suburbs when people started looking for them. So it's a great opportunity for, you know, young kids to get out there and, you know, explore because you might find a new species of insect. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Mm. So, how's that, like, what's the process of discovering a new animal? Do you, like, obviously it's a lot easier to find a 
undescribed insect than it is to find a undescribed bear or something like <laughs> that. Um, but what's the process? Do you go out, try and find one, compare it to everything? How long does it take? Like are we talking months or sometimes years? Yeah, so it, it really does depend. Um, so if uh, say you're doing like a taxonomic revision of, you know, a genus, like you're definitely, you know, you're specifically targeting, you know, your research and you're targeting a group of animals you know, you'd probably go around all across the country where those animals were, say, you know, a certain genus of scorpion maybe, and you just collect all of them um, that you can find and then you're able to base off, um, you know, just little differences in, uh, in, you know, so it might just be little spines in spiders, their their palps, which are like their first um, front bit of the legs, which they mate with, they have really different when you look at them under a microscope. Or new technology allows us to, you know, get really into the genetic side of it so you can... Um, you know, sequence of DNA of these animals and see which ones are different. But, yeah, so if you're a researcher, you're out specifically looking for these things. But me, just as a wildlife photographer and a naturalist, when I'm um, photographing animals, um, I'll always have in the back of my mind, you know, I have researcher friends who are working on a certain group of animals. So, yeah, I always sort of take photos and collect things that I think might be interesting. And, yeah, if then I forward on to them and if they go, you know, that's something more of interest, I'll, you know, um, collect the specimens or get permits to collect specimens if it's somewhere that requires permits and then yeah through the museum can send it to those researchers so yeah so yeah like I said researchers might specifically be looking for them or you might just come across one and then go wow but it can take a long time for to describe those animals so uh obviously some or some taxonomists I know I've been working on you know maybe say tarantulas for example for 10 15 20 years when it's very very hard and the very subtle differences between um Mm. the species so it can take a long time but others can be a bit quicker so yeah so it's very hard work taxonomists have a lot of respect for the people that do it um something that does it goes past my mind sometimes reading some of the taxonomic papers that my friends do so (laughs) a lot of respect (laughs) And when you're transporting these species um, that you hope to get described, are they dead specimens? Like, do you need to kill them? Is that something that needs to happen? Or would you just, yeah, box it up, send it in the mail, and then hopefully they're alive? Yeah. It sort of depends. So, with with um, a lot of the invertebrates, if it needs to be photographed, I'll send it alive. But most of the time you can't really have any risks if the specimen sort of decaying. So it is you do put it in um, ethanol um, to, to send over. Uh, and obviously sometimes um, you know that some people you know think it can be a bit cruel in that, but at the end of the at the end of the day, uh, especially with these invertebrates, there there's you know there's honestly within a species so many specimens in that population and they recover so quickly that taking a couple um, for the name of science and for the name of their own species is, you know, it's usually pretty well worth it. Um, it's not something that, you know, you enjoy doing, but, you know, if you are going to get into research, taxonomy or even sort of ecology, yeah, you do have to get used to um, sort of, um, yeah, putting specimens away and it is very, very important. So our museum's full of specimens in ethanol. Um, they all tell a story. So it helps researchers um, further down the line, maybe something to do if you know, they want to research the impacts of climate change on certain animals. If you've got preserved specimens from each decade, you can, you know, find little differences between them. So it actually does, in the end, help out with uh, conservation as well. So, yeah, a little bit, you can find it a little bit cruel, but, yeah, it's usually for, for a good cause. So, yeah. 
Yeah, look, I think it's worth it 100%. Um, the interesting thing, though, is like if you're finding a new species, how do you know if it's, you know, endangered, vulnerable yeah. or anything like that? And, you, and you're taking maybe an important individual out of the way, like a, I don't know, a female that's got eggs with her or something like that. Yeah. Um, does that stuff them up further down the line? Yeah, so w- especially with invertebrates, that's not quite a worry uh, because, like I said, their you know their populations are just so immense. It's really it really is different to a lot of our um, uh, our vertebrates. Uh, but even with with vertebrates, a lot of the new species at the moment are being found in remote remote areas. So a lot of the time, a lot of these animals might not be sort of endangered. Um, that's for just straight up discovering new species. But a lot of the time lately, um, species get split. So that means you have species that. Uh, have certain different populations uh, and those with through genetic work usually will actually become new species so and some of those populations may be endangered so the grassland eelish dragons was one recently uh probably i think it was last year where they described um a few species from one species and then those new species were endangered because their populations were so um restricted um so in that Mm -hmm. case it can happen but for most of the time when you are collecting straight up new animals you are some are usually remote and um, it's okay but with vertebrates you always do need permits and um, you know ethics and yeah so it can be a bit more different and uh, yeah obviously yeah obviously you know it's it's up to the researchers um, discretion like you do unfortunately need to have specimens to be able to describe species and like I said it is very important Um, so so yeah so I'm not too worried as you said if collecting like you know gravid or pregnant females of invertebrates because it, yeah it's not too much of a of a hassle so yeah obviously mm-hmm. vertebrates can be a bit different now growing up you're always a big uh reptile guy mm. you know you love herpetology uh and fish as well you're an avid fish keeper too uh but now would you say that your interest is in entomology the study of insects <sighs> it's a hard question i was thinking you might ask something like this it's it's actually grown, it's grown too much. I, like you said, yeah, I did start with freshwater fish. You know, uh, my dad used to have a freshwater aquarium and that's where my interest started. Used to go to that that aquarium on um, Buckley Street. Coburg. No, uh, yeah, that, and the one Coburg on Buckley Aquarium. Street would have been opposite your high school. There was an aquarium there, so that one and the Coburg Aquarium, I used to go there and just, just be in love with, you know, the diversity. I think that's what got me excited, diversity of fish. And then, yeah, we moved on. We both moved on to reptiles, so... Living in suburban Melbourne, it was hard for us to find wild reptiles, obviously, but we, you know, had an interest of reptiles. But but now I honestly get excited about everything. So I'll go through phases, but, you know, orchids excite me so much. Um, you know, different plants excite me now. So <laughs> I've really opened up, you know, being a naturalist now. Everything sort of excites me because I've sort of learned through entomology that everything's connected. So... You know, certain mm. insects that I'm looking for, say jewel beetles, will only eat, you know, or will feed on one species of flower or a caterpillar will only feed on one species of plant. So when you start to target and look for animals like that, you you know, I gain an appreciation for plants and then go, wow, you know, this plant is actually really cool. Um, the whole genus is cool. The whole family is cool. Like, so now, yeah, lately, honestly, everything mm. makes me excited. So every time I'm out in the field, if anyone's in the field with me, uh, I'm just constantly excited, so especially when I'm going to New York. So, yeah, pretty much, yeah, sort of everything, but, yeah, at the moment. I like that. 
I like that, and I respect that, and I um, I, I think I'm a little bit of the same. I'm not a hard botanist, mm. all right. It's very difficult. Um, I just, it is. I just passed my botany subjects when I was in uni. Uh, I got scraped fifty or fifty-one or something like that, which I was still happy with because I tried my hardest. Pretty good, but um, yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> it could be worse. <laughs> um, but so right now I'm I'm borderline predator specialist. I just got to do an exam and then awesome. pass that. Um, so that's where my passions lie, and I, I think uh, I understand where you're getting at. How when you're looking at a specific um, level in the ecology, mm-hmm. whether it's apex predators, whether it's insects or first level consumers or whatever, once you look at that, you need to take into account their surroundings and their interactions with other members of that ecosystem. And then once you've understood that, you can really respect them and obviously you'll need to learn about them as well because it's how they affect their species that you're studying. So I do, uh, I like the way you said it Um, and yeah, I I think you're dead on with that. Once you've found your passion for something, whether it's a quoll, whether it's an orchid, you need to start learning about everything that they affect. Yeah, it's all we're all connected. I always say it's like Star Wars. It's like the Force. Everything <laughs> connected. There's always a bigger fish. There's always, you know. So, um, yeah, I like the way you said that. I think I agree one hundred percent. Now, working as you do as a photographer, uh, you've gotten your photos into Australian Geographic. By the way, is that correct? Yeah. So, yeah, when I was 18 and 19, I actually wrote a few articles for Shane Geographic. Um, I did one on a mouse spider, then centipedes, scorpions and my gallimorphs. So that was pretty cool, having a double page spread each time in the magazine. So that was really exciting. Uh, and, yeah, recently, again, they just shared uh, one of my photos of a king brown snake. So, yeah, I've, I've worked a little bit with them over the years and I do actually have – one or two more articles coming out with them hopefully soon. It takes a bit of time. But, but yeah, um, uh, yeah, I really like getting my stuff out, especially on Strange Geographic. Just my work as a wildlife photographer, basically what I want to do is just raise awareness about our animals, our ecosystem. So, um, you know, when, it, when a bigger company comes along like Strange Geographic and um, can sort of echo my message out a bit more, you know, to a, to a larger audience, it, yeah, it definitely makes me happy. So, so yeah, so that's pretty much you know, what I do, I just want to try and change people's perceptions every day and make them, you know, sort of stop and second guess what they're doing or what, what's around them. So, yeah, I'm very thankful for Australian Geographic for, for helping spread my messages for sure. A hundred percent. They've always been like the paramount, um, the paramount importance to uh, communicating mm, wildlife and conservation to, to the Australian general public anyway. Um how did that happen? How did you get yourself into those magazines? Did they call at you? Did they see some of your photos that you maybe posted online or, um, yeah, how did it happen? Um, yeah, the first one was the, the mouse spider. Uh, so when I was 18, someone sent me uh, a mouse spider. Mouse spider is um, very similar to funnel webs. They live underground. They're very venomous um, and they're usually black in colour and this person sent me one that was completely red. Um, so wasn't quite sure if it was a genetic variation or what, uh, but either way, I actually just wrote up a short article with photos and just sent it to Australian Geographic and they liked it. They got on board and they posted that online. And then, uh, with the other ones, 
I actually saw them. They posted a photo of a centipede and, you know, being 18, 19, you know, maybe being a little bit arrogant of me, I thought, oh, my photos are better than that, aren't they? <laughs> so I sort of <laughs> approached them and um, said, you know, if you want, you know, I can, I've got uh, photos of centipedes from all over Australia. I can uh, write up an article on all these different species if you want. They never really got back to me, but, um, yeah, six months later, someone else, must have been the email archive, liked it, got on board, and then they asked me, yeah, if I wanted to do any more. So I did one on scorpions, my gallimorphs. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Um, yeah, and I do hope to do more in the future because, yeah, I look back at it now and go, ah, oh, you know, my photography's improved so much more now. I look at those photos and sort of um, cringe. So, yeah, I do want to do more with them. But, yeah, it was very, very exciting at the time. So, yeah, my first one was when I was in high school. So, um, yeah, the, the teachers actually didn't believe me at first when I told them, yeah, my articles in Australian Geographic. So it took a bit of convincing and showing them. So that was pretty cool. It was actually a pretty special moment. So, yeah, I was pretty proud of it. <laughs> yeah, as, as you should be. It's um, Look, it's very natural for you to get better at your craft, you know, years down the line. Mm. Uh, so you go on a lot of these, uh, I don't know what to call them, personal expeditions. Yes, what is the closest call you've had with Australian wildlife? Oh, oh yeah, I guess. Is there a lot? Yeah, there is, unfortunately. Um, especially, <laughs> you know, because I guess sort of my main interest in photography is something that a lot of people like is venomous snakes. So uh, a lot of the time when I'm traveling the country, you know, if we do see a venomous snake, you know, constantly laying in front of it, trying to, you know, get a photo of it. Uh yeah, just recently I was out on the Barkley Tablelands, literally in the middle of nowhere in the NT. Uh, got to see some speckled brown snakes. Uh, it was just after a rain event, so they were feeding on frogs. So it was a pretty amazing experience. It's an area that's usually completely dry, completely barren, and um, to see it with water was insane. But, yeah, to see natural behaviour in snakes feeding was pretty cool. So I was actually just laying down with my macro lens and the snakes just couldn't care about me at all and I was just, you know, sort of photographing them but a bit nerve-wracking because, you know, there's these small pools of water and there would have been at some stage like 20 brown snakes around me and uh, me and my friends, yeah, we're having brown snakes crawl or slither under our legs or slither, you know, on top of us sometimes as we're trying to take photos and like, ah, oh. yeah, that's it's an experience I won't forget because it was pretty nerve-wracking but, <laughs> yeah, a lot of the time, when you're out there, the real danger isn't really obviously venomous animals. It's, you know, getting lost, dehydration. So Australian bush is pretty pretty um, hard and remote. But, but yeah, um, it is. It, I do find it fun to get up close and personal without venomous animals. But obviously you, you have to do it properly. Unfortunately, there's quite a few people out there that don't do it properly. Um, you know, they can ruin it for everyone and, you know, mm -hmm. get too close to the animals, touch the animals, annoy the animals and get bitten. Um, but, yeah, so I always do do it safely um, and, you know, respect the animals, and that's the main thing. You really have to respect the animals that you're photographing out in the field. So, yeah, so. But otherwise, yeah, seen yeah. death adders all across the country, brown snakes all across the country. So it's been, yeah, it's always exciting, always exciting. Mm. I always say when working with animals and, uh, you know, people ask if <clears throat> if you're, afraid to get hurt or injured or, you know, killed by an animal, mm. um, you know, you must be really tough or whatever. But I always say it's like that, um, it's it's that live by the sword, die by the sword mentality. Um, obviously, no one wants to get killed by a snake or anything like that. But if you do your homework, 
if you you know read encyclopedia passages on them and see documentaries or whatever you do to study and then you go along with an experienced individual and then they teach you the best ways to work with them yeah the room for error is very small yeah you know like anything like tradies on a work site pretty yeah, exactly. much. Yeah, exactly. Right. A um, lot of the time I'm out in the field or I'm working with these animals, I pretty much never feel like I'm in danger or have any threat to me because I am doing it responsibly. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It, it's pretty much just working on the trade site at the end of the day. You know, you'll get the adrenaline rush when you're, you know, with an amazing animal. Um, I know when we saw a pure in Peru, it felt very out of control and out of my boundaries, but that's yeah. obviously going to happen with a predator. But, um uh, yeah, with you know, with with venomous snakes and that, when you know what you're doing and you, you know you're doing everything safely, you're not getting too close, and but still being able to get those photos, then definitely, yeah, I don't feel mm. like you're ever in danger. When I was in uh, I was in South Africa, I was working in a really cool wildlife rescue sanctuary, and uh, we went into this enclosure with three borderline adolescent to adult lion yeah not for me <laughs> first day well look it, it wasn't for me either about how we went about it but you know i'm very thankful they're very clever people that run it and they're very good they treat the animals yeah, really well uh but even just going in like this is on the first day we're having a tour of this whole property and they go okay we're going into the lion enclosure now and i was like what what there's a fence between us i'm like no 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 if they uh try and bite you smack them and uh act confident and then we just walked in and that was yeah. it and we got lions walking by us and stuff um that's definitely an and that, that just goes back to my earlier point yeah oh look man heart you could hear my heart i swear to god um yeah i was shooting my back yeah I was, <laughs> I was panicking because they, they say teenager adult lions but they're still when they're on their hind legs you know, they're two meters tall. Exactly right. Um, it's hard for us to comprehend the size yeah, and they're like, sometimes, isn't it, until you see them. That's it. They're like, you You guys are Aussies. You deal with snakes and spiders all the time. I was like, yeah, but we don't see them. Maybe in the – Yeah. What I always yeah, say is the tourists that say that, I go, like, man, you're hiking in the US. You've got bears. Like, you're in Africa. You've got lions, South America. You've got animals that – you know, are bigger than you, they can eat you. Like in Australia, like, man, like we don't have anything like that except crocodiles and that's easy. You just don't go near the water where there's crocodiles and you're safe. Easy. But, oh, man, like just, you know, thinking about hiking somewhere with bears, just, yeah, you're right, it scares me. <laughs> like it's crazy how people Bears is one of those animals that I don't think I'll ever work with. Mm. Um, they are like walking tanks. Only the sun bears. You know, they, they don't care. Shoot them, they don't care. They're just crazy. They're crazy. Um, I don't think I'll ever work with a bear. They can just snap just yeah. like that. Um, I don't know. Probably not. Amazing animals. Yeah, uh, I want to be around them as well. <laughs> yeah. Look, maybe we'll graduate. We'll start with a koala. Yeah. You know, and then we'll go to sun bear, and then we'll go to maybe a grizzly. Maybe. Um, <laughs> how about uh, in the water? Have you? Uh, photographed anything under the water, anything aquatic? Uh, I'm guessing not crocs under the water, but any little reef sharks up there? Uh, so Darwin's actually very interesting. So it's very hard. Obviously, you can't go literally anywhere in the water in Darwin because of crocs, mm. but the water is also very, very silty. Um, the harbour, it's just surrounded by mangroves and it's got immense tides. So 
Sometimes in Darwin, you can have a tide that's 0.1 metre and then in six hours, it's gone up to eight metres. So the tide is just constantly stirring up the water. So the water in Darwin is extremely murky. So it's not clear like in Queensland or WA or, you know, even when you go snorkeling on, on the Mornington Peninsula, say, the water's nothing like that. It's not clear at all. So past few four, uh, three or four days, actually, we've had some decent low tides here and I've been out safely on, on the reefs um, and it's very, very difficult. Uh, I've been trying to film some fish with my GoPros and uh, very, very difficult to find areas that aren't just constantly just muck and, and silk. So uh, the way I photograph aquatic animals here is that I bring a little tank out with me and I'll actually catch the fish and photograph them in the tank with clear water and then put them back. So mm. Uh, yeah, because obviously I still want to document the amazing animals here because no one knows that Darwin has coral reefs in it. Like it's just when people come up here, they just see murky water. They think it's crocodiles, jellyfish, and that's it. And um, when I, you know, I'm with people at areas around Darwin and point out to the ocean being like, you know, you know, some days in November at 3 a.m. when the tide's right, I'll go out there and I'll show them pictures of the coral reef. And they're, they're astounded because they don't know it. So, um yeah, it's always wanted me to get out there and photograph these animals and share it with people. So, uh, so yeah, I have to put them in, in a photo tank to do that. But I do want to do a little project on filming some of these fish in the wild. So the past few nights I've gone out, uh, me and Lucy have filmed our northern wobbegongs and speckled cat sharks out on these shallow reefs, which is pretty cool. So I was able to get some semi-clear semi footage of them. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't actually have my camera isn't set up for underwater photography. So when I do even go um, back home to Victoria, Queensland, I, yeah, I can't actually get in the water. It's a bit expensive if you want to go down that line of the hobby, getting underwater, you know, um, photography gear. So I actually just stick with a GoPro and just try and do little, little, little films. So yeah, maybe one day I'd love to. I know I'd love to be able to snorkel and photograph animals. That would be incredible. Fair enough. Do, do you get bull sharks up there? Because mm -hmm. I'm guess you know, I'm hearing mangrove, changing tides. I'm thinking that is prime. Don't even need the ocean or the mangroves because the bull sharks are in freshwater here as well. So uh, yeah. <laughs> there's a popular swimming site here, Berry Springs. If anyone out in Darwin is listening, this might you might want to turn this down a little bit now, but there is bull sharks in there. We've um, the right <laughs> our wildlife park. We're constantly going out there to just sort of collect fish and get water samples and whatnot. And we've seen quite a few bull sharks uh, pretty close to the public area where people swim in fresh water. So never any too big, though. I'm talking like a metre, a metre, a half once. But in our big rivers, uh, yeah, bull sharks everywhere. Not just bull sharks, tiger sharks in on the coast. And we're pretty lucky to have two unique species of um, river sharks up here as well. But bull sharks obviously are the main, main, th the main threat, but... Like I said, no one's really going in the water up here, so it's not too much of a worry. And, yeah, I don't think there's ever been an attack up here in those freshwater um, ecosystems either. So, yeah. yeah. Look, I'm a big fan of those two river shark species that you mentioned. Um, I don't know if you know, but we got one down in Sea Life Melbourne. Oh, do you? Uh, we got the spear tooth sharks down here. We wow. Got, yeah, we got three individuals, one male and two females. Yeah, that's uh, but then the other species, of course, is the northern river shark. Um, I'm a big fan of these sharks because no one really knows much about exactly. them at all. Uh, they're incredibly rare. 
Uh, have you seen any in the no, world? No, 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 no. So on those big rivers, like when you're on those rivers, like the Daly River, it's just brown. It's brown and you're never going to want to even get yeah. close to the water because of crocs. So no, um, but you're right. That's why it's so exciting. Um, and it's, it's the same what I tell people at work with our, our freshwater whip rays. You, it's very hard to study them. You can put GPS trackers on them and whatnot, but you can't get in the water with them. It's very hard. You know, you couldn't even put a camera down them to see, you know, what sort of behaviours they're doing because the water is just brown and it's also dangerous. So yeah, I've been lucky enough. Low visibility. Yeah, in Kakadu, I was lucky enough once on a shallow sandbank to see a wild freshwater whip ray, which was pretty special experience. Obviously, not too many people get to see them in the wild, but no, never the, never the sharks. Um, and in saying that, I haven't spent too much time on the big rivers, usually when we go fishing, but the times that I have been on uh, places like Leaders Creek, I've been able to see uh, the snub-nosed dolphins, which are amazing. Uh, and I actually got to, me and Lucy were very, very lucky enough to see that humpback whale that was um, uh, in Kakadu not long ago, so at the river mouth. So we actually got to see that, which was pretty special experience to see a whale at a river mouth. So, yeah, our rivers are pretty wild up here. Oof. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now, you said before, um, and, you know, if you don't want to talk about this, that's okay. You can tell me to F off. That's fine. Um, but you're doing some work on a documentary. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, unfortunately, I can't, man. I really, really wish I can. Um, COVID, fortunately, uh, yeah, put a big dent in, in the project. The project didn't get to get finished, uh, but it will be out. It will be on, on Netflix uh, hopefully at the end of the year. So, yeah, me and, me and Lucy were um, assisting the cameraman, so we actually did get to take some of the footage ourselves, which is pretty exciting. But unfortunately I can't talk too much about the project. But, yeah, if you follow my page when it finally gets um, posted, me and Lucy will, will um, post about it. And, yeah, but that, that was an incredible experience. So we got to work with some amazing Australian um, cameramen and it sort of really changed mine and Lucy's career path. Like we definitely want to get into um, – wildlife filmmaking so yeah so that's one thing that me and lucy um yeah we were very lucky enough to to be able to borrow a proper film camera um from from these people um whilst we're in darwin so we did a bit of filming and when we had to give it back we were just itching so we're trying to save up to buy another film camera now and yeah hopefully maybe start making some little short films of ourselves before yeah really starting to get into that industry because it's pretty pretty exciting Oh, that sounds awesome. Oh, I agree. that It's an incredible industry. I was lucky enough to mirror a few cameramen um, that were filming Blue Planet 2. Yeah, wow. That's awesome. On Heron Island, we're watching some turtle eggs uh, being laid. That's unreal. That was cool. But look, I didn't get paid for it. I was just happened to be there at the same time as them. Uh, but yeah, I'm very keen to see this project that you partook in. Um so was that just a case of right place, right time, or did you guys need to apply to to help out? What what was your role? Were you like wildlife? Um, what's the word? Starts with C. Correspondence, you know, yeah. like oh, look over here. Yeah, so very similar. So it, it was actually freak chance. So at the time, me and Lucy were at an area uh, where we were actually just using our normal Canon cameras. We're actually just trying to get into film, and we were filming just animals and uh we bumped bumped into someone and they were asking what we're doing we're just like oh we're just trying to trying to film these these animals and 
at, at the time, um, you know, you get a lot of people approaching you when you're in the field asking what you're doing and that. So uh, I just I just treated it like that. You know, it was being really nice and friendly. Little did I know they were uh, – he was a massive UK um, cameraman that had um, done so many massive documentaries, um, all the David Attenborough documentaries. He's been involved in so many of them. And, like, when we found that out, me and Lucy were like, holy crap. And, yeah, he told us that a project was happening there and he, he just sort of told us to if we wanted to come and like you said shadow the cameraman and learn a bit more because uh yeah he just liked us at the time I'm like yeah definitely and uh because of covid a lot of um things happened and where we when after we did a little bit of work we actually got stood up to um be a bit more higher up in the project so yeah so we were mainly so we were camera assistants for the project so uh, we would help rig up the camera um, before and after the, the shoots and, um, yeah, also go out and, and see the wildlife first and say, yep, this is happening, um, you know, two or three days in a row, this is happening, let's get, get the camera down here. So incredible experience being, you know, two months out somewhere on shoot uh, and, yeah, just working with the gear as well was just so far over my head, you know, working uh, you know, just with camera equipment, photography equipment is, yeah, it's just a huge step up when you get into the film industry. So it was super exciting learning curve for me and Lucy and we built really good relationships. So, yeah, it was, yeah, incredible and amazing opportunity. So started with, you know, being there at the right place, right time, but at the same time, I guess, uh, me and Lucy, you know, have done quite a lot up here now. Our resume up here is pretty built up with a lot of um, environmental stuff up here. So we did have the you know, so the credits to back up our position, which did feel good as well. So, yeah, it was very exciting. I can't wait to see it, man. So, that will be coming out later yeah, this hopefully. year in, would you say, fourth quarter? Yeah, probably? hopefully, hopefully. So, on Netflix. So, yeah, I'll definitely um, post awesome. about it when it happens. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to watch it now. Um, and if people want to follow you, I know your Instagram's nvolpe. Yeah. What is it? nvolpe.wild. Yeah, Almost yeah. got there. <laughs> Um, you, you have incredible pictures. I, I follow you very, very closely Thank there. You. Um, where else can they follow? Yeah, so I'm on, I'm on Facebook. Um, so on Facebook, uh, it's just Nick Volpe Wildlife Photography. Uh, and I do have a Twitter as well. It's just you type in Nick Volpe, it should um, come up. So, yeah, I just circulate sort of between Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Um, and we do, me and Lucy have just made a website. So that's nrwild.com, which you can also see on our, uh, all the social media platforms. And yeah, we're just starting up galleries there and blogs and hopefully soon um, start printing our photos as well. So yeah, there's a bit of a process behind that to get that right. So it's something we definitely want to do as well. Awesome. If you're interested in anything, insects, reptiles, fish, um, Elasmobranks, whatever you want to say, <laughs> give them a follow because uh, they have some pretty incredible images coming up and hopefully soon a little documentary yes. too. Uh, thanks very much, Nick. Appreciate you for coming. No up. worries. It's been great. It's great to catch up with you. So, appreciate that. So, yeah, thanks for that. It was great. My pleasure. Take it easy, guys.